Is just policing possible? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Jake Monahan. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Jake Monahan. Starting this fall, Jake will be an assistant professor of philosophy at the University of Southern California. Before that, he was a visiting assistant professor of philosophy in the Smith Institute for Political Economy and Philosophy at Chapman University and an assistant professor of philosophy at the University of New Orleans. He earned his PhD in philosophy at the University of Buffalo. Jake's research is primarily in moral and political philosophy. He recently completed a book entitled Just Policing that explores what just and legitimate policing looks like, and that will be the basis of most of our conversation today. Jake, welcome to The Curious Task. Hey, uh, Alex. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, no, it's great to have you on. Uh, so, Jake, we base each episode on a theme in question and go over the, wherever the answers and conversation takes us. Our, our question today is, is just policing possible? And uh, and we'll be exploring your thoughts on that question generally. And, of course, you know, a lot of this sort of thing can be found in, in your book, Just Policing. But uh, but first, I'd like to start with some context setting. Um now, you actually mentioned in the intro of your book that your work on this and, and a lot of your thoughts come from this. This is strictly a, a non-ideal theory play. Can you get into this a bit more, actually, especially for those who might just be first introduced this concept about the ideal theory versus non-ideal theory and how that really affects your work and, and your entire thought process from that point forward, if you wouldn't mind giving a bit of a spiel on that, because I think it's a crucial context point. Sure, I'd be happy to. So uh, the ideal theory and non-ideal theory debate in political philosophy uh, is sort of longstanding at this point, uh, and it's a methodological debate about how we should sort of conduct our philosophical inquiries about, you know, political matters. Uh, so one way of thinking about it uh, is uh, the ideal theorists and the non-ideal theorists disagree about what sorts of assumptions uh, we are entitled to be making uh, when we're engaged in theorizing. So the way that I like to think about it uh, is that most political theorists and philosophers are basically engaged in this project of reasoning about like model societies. Uh, so, you know, G.A. Cohen famously imagines uh, that we lived as if we lived on a camping trip. Uh, and he thinks that we can sort of derive some insights about justice and, you know, political society from that, Right. He thought there's no institution of property on a camping trip, uh, and so a just society is not going to have, uh, you know, an institution of private property, right? In uh, matters that are a little bit closer to the sort of thing that I work on, uh, you have philosophers like John Rawls uh, who think we should be uh, – our, our project is one of trying to think about, like, what we uh, can be um, – what we can reasonably demand of one another. And one way to think about how to answer that question is we think about, well, what if everyone's reasonably well-motivated, uh, they have similar conceptions of justice, our institutions work roughly as we imagine them to, uh, there's not you know, widespread corruption or anything, uh, people are predisposed to follow rules. Uh, and in a world like that, you know, what do our institutions need to look like? Uh, and if you start with these kind of idealizations, uh, about the sort of model society that you're reasoning about, that's going to 
give you or, or sort of put you down the path to certain answers to uh, questions about just policing, right? So Rawls famously doesn't theorize about institutions of criminal justice in a theory of justice uh, because he thinks that that's left for the domain of what he calls partial compliance rather than full compliance. So full compliance is this ideal theoretical realm and then partial compliance is you know, one thing that's non-idealized. Okay, so that was sort of a, a long-winded spiel, but the thought is, if you are engaged in reasoning about uh, an idealized society, uh, you're going to come to certain conclusions about just policing and social control. Uh, and if you imagine, uh, rather, that there are lots of problems, lots of injustices, things like resource scarcity, you know, differences in mental health and mental acuity, all of these sorts of things... Uh, you'll come up with different answers to these questions about just policing. And so I start by saying this is a work of non-ideal theory uh, because that really is one of the driving forces behind the, the conclusions that I, uh, that I arrive at. Like if you're used to, you know, reasoning with your ideal theory hat on. Right. And, you know, and just to round that off a little bit, too, I, I don't want to, like, seem too flippant about those who might be working in this realm in, in ideal theory. But, like, is it is it safe to say or fair to say to some degree that, like, you know, you, again, like, you have to be very concerned with the world sort of as it is rather than some background conceptions of, like, you know, how it, you know, how how it should be or, you know, in an ideal way, X, Y, Z, A, B, C. Like, like your sort of challenge when you did your work was basically given the way the world is and at least the way I've researched it, here's some conclusions we can draw. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, yeah, that's a fair summary. So it, it's not that the ideal theorists are unconcerned with these problems of injustice. Uh, there are certain theorists who think that the goal here is to like first specify an ideal and then think about how we can justly transition from where we are now to the ideal. Uh, but the problem there, I think, is that like the idealizations that go into their reasoning lead them to some pretty problematic conclusions. Um, so just to give you one quick example, right, if you imagine that your legislature is working really effectively, firing on all cylinders, you know, proportionally representing all of the interests, the deliberation is high quality, uh, you know, they're doing their best to, you know, fine tune the laws and stuff like that. You imagine that your legislature is a little bit like, I don't know, like the rules committee for like the NFL or the MLB or something like that, right? This right. really, really high quality sort of well-resourced, you know, deliberative rulemaking body. If you imagine in a world like that, well, then maybe you think that police should be doing something much more like full enforcement. But if you imagine that the legislature is actually not, you know, uh, all that effective, right? If you imagine that the legislature looks quite a bit more like legislatures in the United States do, uh, then it's not so clear to me that you want police officers fully enforcing all of the laws, right? Uh, because one legislature is going to produce mostly just laws. And another legislature, the other legislature, the non-ideal one, is much less likely to produce just laws, right? And so that just sort of opens the door for thinking, okay, well, maybe just policing requires kind of a light touch. Right. No, that makes a lot of sense. And thank you for all that. I think that was great context setting because it's going to really be like the the uh, the sandbox that people have to, you know, think of your answers as we go through this conversation as we move forward. So that that's excellent. And I and I do have another context setting question again before we dive into some other things too. So, you know, we talked about ideal theory, non-ideal theory and how you are approaching this topic. And another part too, I just want to sort of ask you, 
what you mean when it comes to what you mean by police or policing. Like, it sounds silly, but I think it's important to be specific, especially since people don't have time to, you know, uh, we, do, we don't have time, I should say, to read your book here together. So, you know, when people are thinking about you mean just the police and just policing and so on, like, you know, w- what do we mean? Do you mean literally the idea of someone, you know, uh, being called into a sec- secure situation? Do you mean the whole institution of policing itself, like this whole idea of modern policing and all the kinds of things that they handle? Like, like where how do we frame that, at least for the sake of our conversation today what were what were you tackling in the book yeah good that's not a silly question at all that's actually really important uh, and i take it to be like really central to answering these questions you know effectively so to start one thing to say is that we can distinguish between institutions and functions uh so there are institutions or agencies of policing right the los angeles police department uh and then there are functions of policing so what is it that these agencies are doing Uh, And one of the reasons the book is called Just Policing uh, is because I think that there are these questions about the function of policing uh, that are really important uh, and that don't go away. Even if you think that institutions of policing are sort of uniformly and hopelessly unjust and irredeemable, right? So the book starts with, in some ways, a response to the abolitionists, not because I take them to be my primary target, but because I think responding to some of the uh, police abolitionists is a good way of getting a handle on uh, the substantive questions about the function of policing. Uh, right. The various functions of policing aren't the sort of thing uh, I claim in the book, I argue in the book, that we can abolish even if the abolitionists get what they want and abolish you know, the, the existing institutions of policing. Uh, and then one of the things that I talk about later in the book that's really important is that uh, there's not actually just one police function. So a lot of political theorists and uh, political philosophers sort of writing in this separations of power tradition, you know, following Montesquieu, there's like the big three, right? Executive, uh, legislative, judiciary. Uh, and the thought is, well, the police just fall under the executive, right? That's just the police power. It's this general thing. But I actually think that that's not the case, uh, that there are a whole bunch of police functions and distinct police powers that we do really well to keep separate. Uh, and then that can inform a lot of the um, uh, sort of institutional questions uh, that we have. Great. And, and that segues really nicely into something I wanted to sort of cap off, if you will, this general context setting stuff where you talked about, you know, that what you just explained can really, you know, fuels a lot of the questions that we're going to be asking. So then let's get right into it. Like, you know, you get into the right at the beginning of the book, even, you know, we're talking about this idea of justice and just policing, but you also get into the idea of legitimacy, like, you know, how legitimate the police are, police legitimacy, and you kind of sort of talk about how, you know, those are two different things and you have specific meanings for them. So what, what do you mean by like when it comes to justice, when it comes to policing and then this idea of legitimacy and how do you set that framework? Yeah, good. So, um, Following a pretty common usage in political philosophy, I basically just mean that um, both both concepts deal in part with uh, justification and permissibility. Uh, So like unjust policing, right, that's it's impermissible. It's not justified. Um, But a lot of people think that uh, like, you know, political power is so important. The function that the state provides is so important that um, Agents of the state can be permitted to exercise power in ways that are not completely just. Uh, And so we can distinguish justice, sort of like full justice, from legitimacy, 
uh, which is sort of a less demanding concept, right? So when I talk about police legitimacy, I just mean, uh, is this police power permissible? Uh, do we have obligations to obey? Uh, do they have the right to exercise power in this way? Uh, and the claim is just that, you know, look, I'm doing this non-ideal theory stuff. I've sort of given up on the possibility of any political institution being fully just. Uh, but what we do want to hold on to are these sort of more uh, moderate requirements of legitimacy. And this ends up being really important in contexts where people disagree about uh, conceptions of justice. So, you know, we might have different, this is sort of core to the liberal project. We've got different conceptions of justice. You know, one thing to do is try to come up with a, a, a conception, of, a liberal conception of justice that everyone can agree to. Another thing that you might do is sort of, sort of set your sights uh, a little bit uh, lower and try to come up with an account of permissible power in light of the fact that we have these widespread and thorough disagreements about justice. Right. Uh, so I don't know, maybe it's a little bit of a bait and switch kind of thing, right? I'm like, just policing to get you to open the book. And then I'm like, hey, I'm doing non-ideal theory. What I really, really care about is legitimacy. <laughs> yeah, well, fair but enough. If it's, if it's illegitimate, it's, it's unjust yeah, so, yeah. in that respect, right? Fair enough. No, it's not It's not that cheap. I mean, this, this, on, on the list of book switcheroos, you're probably far down as far as the worst. <laughs> <laughs> as far as the worst violation, I'll say that. Um, and actually, you rounded off sort of a, a bunch of questions there. You just sort of say, you know, you're tackling certain things and certain discussions that people often have in this realm and so on. Um, and, and one thing you actually note right in the intro, too, is also that how the discussion that you're having there and discussions about modern policing and the modern institutions, like you kind of threw out a sentence there. I think you said something along the lines of, if I recall correctly, you know, at the end of the day, these are just newer versions of older class, class, classic problems. Like, mm -hmm. can you elaborate on that a little bit further, too? Because I think that, like, Obviously, people will feel that modern policing is a modern discussion. But I think, you know, when, when you, I read that sentence, it struck me that a lot of people, um, sometimes the way they approach this topic, there is sort of this feeling like this is this completely new set of principles or discussions we need to be having about modern policing. But when you just threw out that one sentence, I found that interesting. And I want to dig in, dig into your thought a little more about that, too, you know, for our discussion today. Like, what, what do you mean that at the end of the day, like a lot of this is just newer versions of older problems? I thought that was interesting. Yeah, so I guess I mean that in several ways. Uh, so the, I guess uh, like the most shallow way is just that there's this view that policing is like really, really new. You know, it comes from like the Le London Metropolitan Police and like what 1859 or something like that. I uh, I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, and then before that, you know, we, we didn't have policing, uh, but that's really not the case, right? When you look to the history of you know like city watches. Um, We've had various formalized institutions of social control that look quite a bit like what your contemporary, you know, patrol officer does uh, walking around, making sure that no one's getting into trouble. You know, uh, like you'll see officers today and at least in the United States do this like blue light patrol. Right. They just drive around at night with their light on. Um, and it's like, hey, I'm here, you know, don't get into any trouble. Uh, and, you know, people used to walk around London and like, you know, the 1500s, just like shouting the time. And it was like, hey, I'm here, you know, don't don't get in any trouble. And so the the function and I, I want to claim the institution or at least one manifestation of the institution of policing uh, is actually pretty old. Um, and it's continuous with less formalized versions of social control. And these are ultimately just questions about uh, the permissible exercise of political or social power uh, to sort of protect a contentious view of rights uh, or to maintain, you know, a, a particular vision of society or something like that. Uh, so in one way, 
Uh, these are new versions of old questions because the police are surprisingly old. And in another way, these are new versions of old questions because, you know, what people, uh, you know, like old political philosophers were doing is thinking about uh, justifying various kinds of political power. And in addition to justifying various kinds of political power, they were also concerned with justifying particular institutional forms for that, right? So like John Locke was really worried about uh, the fact that there was this domestic and uh, sort of foreign-facing power under the executive. There's the military and there's the police. He's like, we can't have them, they're doing two things, right? But we can't have them separated because then you would have two armed forces under the control of two people and then they could fight. And that would be really bad, right? And it's sort of funny now that there are like 18,000 police agencies in the United States. Um, there's like a bunch of branches of the military in the United States, right? He was like totally wrong about that. But he was really concerned with, at the end of the day, like what should this sort of like really early proto-administrative branch look like? Mm -hmm. so, so is it fair to sort of say that, you know, th these sorts of questions of what policing in some sense is just this general idea of it looks like is is quite you know old and goes ways back, he said. But but it would be fair if someone say like like the modern police institution, like that's like because well, it's modern, that's redundant, but it's relatively recent. Like you said, like, you know, London Metropolitan Police, some of the stuff in the 1800s. So it's fair to say that the modern policing has been with us since about that time. But the I, this whole discussion of policing and what it looks like is it goes further back. That that's more accurate, I guess, in your mind is what I'm hearing. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, and questions about what the police are permitted to do are, you know, like more specific versions of questions about like what the executive branch is permitted to do. Um, and it's not just that, right? Like it raises questions about, you know, uh, proper legislation and separations of power, which again, you know, these are these are relatively uh, old questions. But I don't want to suggest that there aren't, you know, really new cutting edge questions here, right? Like, right. is it a good idea to equip police agencies with tasers? Not a question that Locke was interested in, right? right. Exactly. Yeah. Locke probably wasn't interested in like, you know, also, you know, rolling tanks and armored vehicles and things like that either. So. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Well, let, let's get a little bit into uh, into more meat of the matter here. So uh, I like the way you set this up in in your book as well. I mean, like I, I, at the end of the day, you, you nod to the fact that the first question to be asked when people really get into this type of discussion shouldn't really be what does just policing look like, but rather, uh, you, and you list two things here: would a just society have police at all? And is just policing possible? So, like, you know, you and you you don't just say that. You say that. You say lots of people end up you know, starting there, perhaps. So I, I like to, honestly, like, I, and again, I, I always say to our listeners, there's a lot more in uh, in Jake's book than we can get into here. So a lot of this is high level and exploring his thoughts, rather. So we encourage everyone to look at the book. Um, but I'd like to actually use those as a starting point. I know that's like a little unfair, but take it as you will. There are two questions sure. I want to throw out to you. So, you know, would a just society have police at all is the first one, and is just policing possible, which is, of course, the rest of your book. So let's start with the first one. Would a just society have police at all? Can you talk a bit about what your thoughts are on that, what others' thoughts are, some of the history of this question, however you want to take it, I think this is a key pillar, though. Would a just society have police at all? What's what's your take on that question and, and this conundrum here? Right. So um, partly it depends on what we mean by just society, right? And so this goes back to uh, our questions about ideal and non-ideal theory. Uh, so whether a just society would have police depends in part on what that society looks like. Uh, and so it depends on the kind of idealizing assumptions that we're making about society. So 
there's one view uh, that you can associate with certain uh, left-wing political thinkers uh, and novelists, right? If you've read uh, Le Guin's The The Dispossessed, there's this view here that like the just society is going to be one uh, that is either post-resource scarcity uh, or uh, there's like sort of no sense of private property. And so there's no sense of private property. And if there is, if you have everything that you need, like why would you ever steal? Like the concept of theft kind of doesn't make sense, right? And so there's this view uh, that uh, a totally ideal, fully just society would be one where we all just, you know, hang out uh, and there are no conflicts. Um, and so therefore, you know, we wouldn't need any institutions to resolve our conflicts, right? I don't talk about it in all that much detail in the book. Uh, I have another paper where I talk about this in some more detail. Uh, but I think that the kind of idealizing assumptions that you need to make in order to get to that conclusion go way beyond anything that any serious political thought you know, should be engaging in, right? Uh, the fact is we right now live in a world with resource scarcity. Uh, and so there are going to be problems of justice that arise because of that. Uh, we live in a world where people disagree. Uh, and so, like, maybe you can imagine idealizing the world so much such that it's fully homogenous and there's no disagreement. Uh, and then, you know, there's no conflict of interests that give rise to, you know, the need to have coercive institutions, you know, to, to resolve them. Uh, but, like, that seems to me like a really uninteresting uh, level of idealization. Uh, if you imagine that there's no resource scarcity, if you imagine that we all fully agree, then you kind of imagined away the need for political thinking, I think. Right. Uh, and so, uh, you know, maybe the, like the ideal theorists think that there's something really valuable about thinking about what society would look like given these various kinds of idealizations. Uh, but I don't think that there's all that much of value we get because there's a question about, you know, whether we can get there. Uh, there's a question about like whether our institutions will actually look good if we kind of like just approximate that ideal. Right. Um, okay. Yeah. So, so that's one, one way of thinking about whether there would be police in an ideal society. Uh, and one claim is a claim that I make is that, uh, in any sort of model society that has anything like philosophically interesting idealizations, uh, there will be a need for institutions of social control uh, because we'll need we'll need the function of social control. There will be disagreements, right? Um, you you know, like someone might think that they're permitted to hang out in front of a shop and play loud music, and the shopkeeper has a disagreement, right? There's this is the kind of disagreement that exists in, even in highly idealized societies. And if you want to imagine that away, like you have to engage in, I think, philosophically uninteresting levels of idealization. So. Uh, will a re like a reasonably just, a moderately idealized society have police? I think so, because uh, what sorts of things do we need the police to do? We have various conflicts of interest, uh, sort of, you know, we extend into metaphysical space, as uh, uh, my uh, friend Brandon Del Pozo likes to put it, uh, and that just creates friction, that creates conflict, right? Uh, and so... Even if people are relatively uh, well-motivated, well-meaning, uh, even if there isn't, you know, huge disparities in terms of wealth or whatever, I think that there are still going to be uh, various tasks we need uh, 
you know, an institution of policing to carry out, right? Right. That makes sense. So then if we are to assume that, you know, you know, again, with, without getting into, as, as you put it, sort of imagining away things to the point where we're not really having an interesting discussion anymore, even in a, in a, in a quite just society, we, we would end up with, with police or some policing functions, as you say. So assuming that, uh, on the second question, then, what's your take on this idea of if, if just policing is even possible? Like before you and I even discuss what just policing looks like, the idea is whether or not it's possible actually is quite interesting. Uh, I guess I suppose in other words, are assuming that police are just uh, are needed or justified to some degree, are we just stuck with the fact that it's always going to be an unjust thing? Or so what? So what's your take on is just policing possible? Yeah. So my take is that it's possible, uh, but sort of extremely difficult. Uh, policing is always risky, right? Social control is brought, brought with injustice. Um, so uh, one kind of argument that the abolitionists make uh, is that um, our institutions of policing are sort of essentially unjust because they originate in uh, systems of oppression, right? They originate in, you know, colonizers, uh, you know, slaveholders, uh, right? The slave patrol is supposedly one of the sort of earliest forms of policing in the United States. Um, and like, so don't get me wrong, like lots of actual policing uh, is horrendously unjust and lots of police agencies sort of have their roots in really, really unjust social control. Like the New Orleans Police Department uh, claims to be the longest running police department in the United States. I think they want to try and like one up, you know, New York City and Boston. Uh, but like the downside there is like, you know. Uh, in like the early 1800s, you know, the NOPD was doing like really horrendous stuff. So right. It's like not clear to me why they want to maintain that legacy. Right. Right. OK. But anyway, uh, is it true that all policing comes from uh, these sort of unjust motives? Uh, I think that's not true. Uh, and I think that you can see this in two different ways. Right. So one thing that you can do is you can look to sort of proto uh, early police departments, uh, the night watches. Um, there were, you know, like the hue and cry, right? Uh, it used to be that like policing sort of the night watch was this amateur function. Everyone took tur- took turns patrolling. Uh, and if you saw someone misbehaving, right, you raise the hue and cry and then all the able-bodied men are supposed to like rush out and, uh, and help, right? And much like our institutions of public health, we come to realize like we probably want some more professionalization and some more specialization. And so that sort of stuff happens slowly, right? You get night watches carrying uh, equipment, badges, uniforms. Some of them are uniformed, right? Well before the London Metropolitan uh, Police exists. And when you look at early the early history of departments in the United States, uh, there are a lot of cases where when you get urbanization, you get night watches, right? They were sort of just imported, right, when people came. And so in a place like uh, Charleston, South Carolina, there was enough urban density that the city watch preceded the slave patrols. But in more rural places, the slave patrols came first because you just didn't need the city watch if you didn't have much density, right? So what you see is like, on the one hand, yes, there is the very real possibility, the actuality that, that people will take these uh, sort of reins of political power and use them unjustly. Uh, and that happened and it will continue to happen, right? Uh, but it's also not the case that that's the exclusive sort of genesis of policing. There's also this basic need uh, sort of to maintain order in dense environments uh, that give rise to the police. And so, 
they're the police agencies are not essentially unjust. They're not like essentially rooted in injustice. Uh, they, they can be, but they're not necessarily. And so uh, contrary to the abolitionist, I think just policing is possible, uh, though, you know, I think the abolitionists would at least agree with this part. It's like extraordinarily difficult to achieve. And I actually think I was about to jump into something else right there, but I realized that's an excellent place to take our break because we're at about that time. So we'll do that right now. Everyone, you're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Jake Monahan today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a huge thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Randy T. Simmons, Travis Smith, and John Robson. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, rate us on Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task, and check out the Institute for Liberal Studies. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Curious Task. I'm seeing with Jake Monahan today. So, Jake, I think the first half was great. We did a lot of context setting, and we were just starting to bite into the meat of uh, of your thoughts on uh, you know whether a just society could have police at all. Uh, you know, if just policing is even possible. We just sort of finished off those two questions. Now, jumping right back into it here. So, uh, assuming that even a, a a society that's quite just might end up having police or some sort of those functions to some degree, and that just policing is possible but as you said towards the end of our first half they're tremendously hard assuming those types of things now let's get into the the big one here uh and again you have a whole book on this i encourage people to go check that out but you know for the sake of our conversation let's see how much we can get into it what does just policing look like then what what kind of thoughts can you offer us even at the high level of the way we should be thinking about this and the way you think about it yeah so okay we talk about the abolitionists right and they sort of represent i think one uh, major sort of school of thought uh, with respect to the justice of policing. Uh, there's another school of thought that you might like associate with like, you know, the pre-professional reform, kind of like early beat cop who's like, you know, doling out street justice and using the third degree, right? This is sort of like the the police are sheepdogs and, and everyone else is just getting in their way and they need to be sort of like freed to protect us, right? Thin blue line kind of conception of just right, policing, right. which I think is just like kind of a joke, right? Uh, there's then uh, this uh, liberal legalist approach to thinking about just policing. Uh, and there aren't any, you know, really explicit proponents of this view, right? Like no one has written anything saying, you know, I am a liberal legalist about just policing. Uh, so to kind of come up with a foil here for my views, I've had to like engage in some reconstruction of this legalist view. But I think that the legalist view uh, represents a mainstream but inchoate way of thinking about just policing. And there are a bunch of roots to this legalist view. Uh, you could be you know, a Democrat who thinks that uh, legislative supremacy is really important. Uh, you could be a Republican who's really concerned with, you know, separations of power um, or uh, anyway, there are, there are a whole bunch of roots to this sort of thinking. Right. Uh, you could be just like a regular old liberal. Like I think that Locke falls falls into this kind of category here as well. Uh, but what they all share in common is this kind of preoccupation with full obedience, uh, a preoccupation with full enforcement. Uh, and this opposition to uh, discretionary policing. 
So the way that I think of the legalist view is it's this passive view of policing. It says that here's the way that a a reasonably just and legitimate society will work. Uh, We all get together and we form our political preferences and then we vote for representatives. And the representatives then, you know, take up the the project of making a set of rules, uh, staffing out, you know, the executive. Maybe we vote for one of the executives, depending on how the system is supposed to go. And then uh, the legislature is the is this uh, source of our decision making, right? And then so on this view, what is the executive supposed to be? Uh, just a conduit through which our democratic will flows. Uh, okay, and so that means that we really don't want police officers making lots of decisions. We really just want them kind of following orders, uh, because for a police officer to make decisions uh, is for them to take up something that looks uh, much more like a legislative role. Right. So again, right, if you're a Democrat, that'll bother you for certain reasons. If you're a liberal, that'll bother you for other reasons. If you're a Republican, you know, the sort of like the in the the constitutional sense of the term, that's gonna bother right. you for like separation of power reasons, right? Um okay, so but look, they've got this passive view of policing. Uh, but I think that this sits really uncomfortably with the kind of informal model that I've built out in the book that I think should guide our thinking. And that informal model includes things like uh, incompetent or at least inefficient legislatures, right? They're really not that good at their jobs. Like the model penal code exists because states had really, really terrible penal codes. It turns out like the legislature, uh, the legislatures that you were, you know, staffing and creating were really bad at making uh, criminal laws. Um, Okay, so this is one kind of problem uh, that I think puts a little bit of pressure on this passive view, right? Um, But then there are a whole bunch of other problems, uh, and they interact, right? So one of the things that I sort of make a big deal about in the book uh, is uh, arguing that uh, police are working in a complex and coupled society. So what that means is we have a whole bunch of institutions uh, that are coupled, they interact with one another, and there's so many of them that it can be really difficult to predict what the interactions are going to be like, right? Okay, so you get things like um, failures in the uh, sort of screening stage. So like police officer makes an arrest, uh, they write a report, Uh, They pass it over to the prosecutor, and then the prosecutor is supposed to screen the case to figure out whether the officer made a good arrest. Is there enough evidence that they can win if they take the case to trial or something like that? Is this the sort of thing that the prosecutor's office should even be spending any time on, right? Now, uh, if you think that that part of the state, the process works really well, then you're going to say, well, look, police officers should just make the arrests that we've told them to make and then turn uh, the suspects over. Uh, for adjudication, right? And we can engage in whatever the process looks like there. But we know that, like, uh, the prosecutors don't do a great job of screening, right? Uh, They either are sort of, like, understaffed or they're giving people, you know, sort of junior prosecutors uh, cases and they don't have a sense of perspective yet because they're, you know, so early on in their career or, you know, in even, you know, more to more like terrible sorts of cases, right? Uh, there's a private injury law firm in New Orleans right now. I think Morris Bart, who is screening uh, cases for the New Orleans, uh, the, the Orleans Parish DA, uh, because I guess they're understaffed. I don't know the full details or anything like that, but like the thought of that is horrifying, right? Like right. It's like, ambulance chaser is doing screening for, by the way, a federally indicted uh, DA, right? 
Okay, so given these kinds of non-ideal parts of our society, uh, this passive view of police where the police are just conduit, uh, I think looks really unattractive. It looks really attractive given certain modeling assumptions. But given the kinds of non-ideal modeling assumptions that I make, it looks really unattractive. And so if you think we don't want the police to actually be this passive sort of conduit uh, because, you know, full enforcement or, you know, like uh, as close as we can get to full enforcement is going to look pretty unjust. Well, now here's a really serious question. Uh, what should strategic policing look like? Mm. Right. Or, or rather, if just policing is strategic. Uh, well, now how should police exercise their discretion and sort of make decisions uh, about using their resources and stuff available? To them? And I take that to be where like lots of the action is. Yeah. And and well, I mean, that, that works perfectly because I was going to walk right into that with my next question. So obviously we can't cover all of that action, as I keep saying in, in the hour or less that we have here. But maybe maybe would you like to pull some of your preferred highlights of like the kind of thing that we should be thinking about within that category? Sure. So let me uh, actually just briefly give you um, uh, one argument that I think will kind of set the stage here, right? So you can think about um, two different kinds of laws. So you can think about laws that are really specific, uh, and then you can think about laws that are rather vague, right? So really specific laws, think about the traffic code. Uh, you know, you can drive exactly this fast and no faster. You have to put your turn signal on 100 feet or whatever before you turn, right? Really, really specific. And there's just a law to cover just about everything uh, because that's what it takes to fully specify, you know, the appropriate use of traffic infrastructure. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, you have vague laws like misdemeanor laws, you know, no loitering. Well, what's loitering, right? Hanging right. out without a purpose. Like, I don't know. I, I like to do that. I like to sit on park benches or whatever. Right. And it's like, I don't know if I'm sitting on a park bench doing nothing. Technically, I have a purpose. So, OK, there's this puzzle about what's loitering. Uh, but also, like, we know that there are people who engage in behavior that we'll call loitering that, like, we don't want. Right. Maybe they're like hanging out in front of an ATM vestibule or something like that. And they're intimidating people or whatever. OK, so you've got these laws can be either specific or vague. They're going to occupy one sort of point on that spectrum. Now, if laws are really specific, violations will proliferate, right? So if you drove to work today, you broke the law a bunch of times. Uh, And police officers say this. They're like, if I want to pull you over for something, I just need to follow you in the car for a little bit. You'll break a law, right? And then I can pull you over uh, and it will be legal, right? And then I can, you know, search. I'll get the the evidence. It'll be fine, right? So what we need is police officers uh, to uh, engage in uh, priority discretion when laws are really specific, right? Am I going to pull someone over for breaking this law, right? And most of, the, most of the time, the answer is no. You can break a whole bunch of laws in front of police officers while you're driving, and they're just not going to stop you because it's just not worth it, right? Um, on the other hand, uh, there's the problem that if a law is vague, you might not have a lot of violations, uh, but you will have officers engaged in uh, interpretation of the statute to figure out whether they want to enforce it, right? Right. So you imagine, you know, you're a really scary racist police officer or something. The way that they enforce the loitering law uh, is, is probably not going to be all that great. Right. And this isn't just a hypothetical question, right? Like, we know that this is the case, right? This is one of the problems that kind of motivated the Warren courts, cracking down on these uh, vague statutes and stuff like that. Okay, so point for my purpose is we're stuck between priority discretion, lots of violations, which ones do I enforce, and interpretive discretion. It's unclear whether there's a violation, and I need to make a judgment, right? And so these questions about interpretation 
are just familiar questions and legal philosophy about like legal interpretation, right? The judge, when they're interpreting a contract, is doing a similar sort of thing as a police officer when they're interpreting a law, right? Mm -hmm. He's interpreting the sort of legal text, and we have to figure out whether this case fits, right? But then the police inherit this whole other scope of problems that have to do with priority, right? The judge operates leisurely, you know, they just, oh, we might, you know, we're going to take a 20 minute break. I'm going to postpone this. I know you're wasting away in jail, but like, I can't get to it, whatever. Uh, I don't know. Maybe I'm being a little mean here, but uh, the police officer also has to deal with not just uh, interpretation, uh, but decisions about priority. Okay, so the thought then is policing is ineliminably discretionary. There's nothing that you can do to eliminate the discretion because you're going to be choosing between one kind of discretion or another, right? You're kind of like, as some some theorists put it, you know, you can move the, you can push the bump in the carpet around, but you can't get rid of it, right? right so right. that's the kind of the case with um, with uh, with executive discretion and police discretion is one one version of this. All right. So that means that like one important question about just policing is how should officers uh, prioritize their resources, right? How should they, what sort of principles should guide their interpretation? What kinds of principles should guide their prioritization? Um, I offer uh, this framework that I call the legitimacy risk profile to help officers uh, and agencies think about allocating their power and making these decisions, right? So Police decisions uh, or instances of police power uh, will have uh, different kinds of qualities, right? So one important distinction is whether the power is proactive or reactive, right? Uh, if an officer is re responding to a 911 call, uh, they're just reacting to some problem uh, that's, that's in progress, right? On the other hand, uh, if a police officer is like, you know, stealthily hanging around in an unmarked car in the corner to see whether you're buying drugs that he thinks that you shouldn't be taking, uh, and then he, uh, you know, watches you buy the drugs and makes an arrest or something like that, I haven't asked him to do that, except in like a really, really, you know, vague sort of general sense. And so the officer there is taking it upon himself to exercise power, right? Um the claim is that proactive police power is much more likely to be illegitimate than reactive police power. Uh, so it's not guaranteed. It's not that all proactive power is illegitimate and all reactive power is legitimate. Uh, right. There's just the, a, a thing of risk to contend with, right? Uh, and so there are a bunch of other dimensions that go into the risk profile that we can talk about. But like this is one way of thinking about uh how to allocate police resources, right? An officer has only so much time on shift, you know, if they like go about uh, making a proactive arrest because they think that, you know, you have crack cocaine or something like that. Well, now they have to process the evidence. They have to write a report. They're not patrolling, right? And if it's in like a dangerous, you know, kind of high crime, high violent crime part of town or something, they're taking themselves off the street. They're not patrolling anymore, right? And so, like, the opportunity costs here end up making a big difference as well, right? Um, okay, so, yeah, that's the thought. Like, proactive power, more likely to be illegitimate. Reactive power, more likely to be legitimate. Uh, and so police officers should tend to prefer to exercise their power reactively. Um, 
And then, like I said, there are a bunch of other uh, sort of uh, aspects of this uh, profile that, that we can keep talking about uh, if you want, or I don't know uh, if you have any questions. Yeah, no, this, there's so much great stuff here, and I am just keeping it on the clock. But I and I I wanted to get to a couple of other kind of questions that I have. But before I leave this sort of base that we're standing on, if you will, I like I, I kind of liked your term, like you were just getting into, as you said, where you think like most of the action is. Before I leave and, and move on to a couple other things, I want to get into to make make sure before the clock winds down. Is there anything else you'd like to highlight? I'll just throw it back to you. Like another great example or going a little further on like another kind of thing that you want the listeners to think about as to where the action is on this topic. Sure. So let me, I guess, uh, then just sort of flesh out the rest of the legitimacy risk profile. Um, So in addition to this uh, metric of productivity or reactivity, uh, you also have uh, high burden police power and low burden police power, right? So if a police officer is just sort of surveilling you, right, he's parked in a hotspots area and he sees you walk by, right? There's a kind of political power involved here, a kind of surveillance, uh, but it doesn't really cost you anything. It's pretty low burden, right? If you get a speeding ticket, you know, and you can afford it, uh, well, that's rather a low burden, right? If you get like a fine that's more expensive, okay, the burden is higher. If you get arrested and now you go to jail, right, and you have to be before a judge, uh, the burden goes up significantly. Uh, if you are in a situation where, you know, you've been given uh, cash bail and you can't afford to get out, and as a result, you lose custody of your children and you lose your job and your car gets repossessed because you stop making payments or something like that, right? The burden goes way, way up. Uh, and so police power that's high burden, you know, naturally more likely to be illegitimate. Police power that's low burden, more likely to be legitimate. Uh, there's the metric of sort of democratic authorization. Uh, so there are certain kinds of political power that are uh, really, really low authorization, right? No one wants police officers doing this sort of thing, or or only a small, really, you know, minority of the population who happens to be empowered wants police officers doing this. Um, and then there are things like high authorization policing, right? So, you know, you can think of like vice on the low authorization side of the spectrum because what counts as vice that we want to police is really contentious. Uh, and then you can think of things like, you know, prohibitions on like sexual assault and uh, you know, murder or something, uh, homicide. Like those are really high authorization uh, kinds of um, kinds of power. And then finally, fourth uh, fourth item is uh, the success rate or the error rate. So certain kinds of policing are really harsh. Certain kinds of policing are really lenient in the same way that a criminal legal or trial uh, system can be harsh or lenient, right? If you're more likely to be found guilty, that's harsh. If you're more likely to be found uh, innocent, it's lenient, right? And so there's this consideration about error rates. Uh, now, all of these things come together to form uh, sort of like a full legitimacy risk associated with different kinds of policing. So if you think about your foot patrol officer kind of walking around, uh, just sort of checking on things, making sure that everything's okay, but he almost never or she almost never invokes their police power, right? Uh, this is a very low legitimacy, legitimacy risk form of policing. It's low burden. It's relatively high authorization, right? The error rate is low. The burden is low, Right. 
Uh, on the other hand, you think about a vice officer who's, you know, engaged in some kind of like undercover sting operation to make sure that people aren't doing, you know, LSD or something like that. Uh, well, this is low authorization. The burden's really high. The power is proactive. It means that they're not exercising their power to do more highly authorized things. And so even if you think, right, that it's legitimate for the state to be uh, enforcing a particular conception of vice, policing a particular conception of vice, you should still notice that that kind of policing is exceptionally high legitimacy risk. Uh, and so at the end of the day, theorists, policymakers, and police officers uh, should prefer uh, to dedicate their resources to low-risk policing rather than the high-risk policing. Uh, and that's super general and vague and everything. Uh, but then, you know, throughout the rest of the book, I go through uh, applications of these specific principles in a little bit more detail. That, that's excellent. No, thank you for going through that. Do you do you think that the, um, I, I guess, like for, for this type of model, for these types of principles and for this type of thinking to be applied to policing in our, let's say, society today, do you think that the current institutions of policing that you've observed, you know, the current police force and so on, is this just a matter of, you know, uh, these things need to be slightly reformed? Or do you think that the the current incentive structures and the way policing exists today, then, um, th this kind of stuff needs to be radically rethought to enable the kind of model that you're talking about? I think that uh, we need very, very serious reform. Um, there was uh, like a, an early draft of the book. Uh, I was thinking of that first chapter as like... Um, defending the view that like what everyone really wants is a particular kind of reform. Right. And that like the reformists and the abolitionists actually agree, like the reformists, at least that like, if you think of me as not an abolitionist, but of a particular kind of reformist, right? Like the kind of reform I'm looking for is going to look pretty close to abolition. Um, at least of the sort of current police agencies that we have. But what's really important is it's like, it's those agencies and not the function of policing that we get rid of, right? Um, okay, so uh, one so one example. Um, I think that the legitimacy risk profiles give you a handle not only on thinking about how to allocate police resources, but also a conceptual handle on the kinds of police power that are exercised. So there's, like I said earlier, this longstanding kind of like tripartite distinction of, uh, of political powers. Uh, sort of separations of power. Uh, and I think actually uh, we should go a little bit more fine-grained, right? There are more separations that we need to make. Um, police agencies house different police functions. What your foot patrol officer is doing is fundamentally different from what, you know, an officer on like a SWAT team is doing. There's like very, very different kinds of political power. Like in the way that Locke drew this distinction between the uh, sort of outward looking and inward looking domestic and foreign kinds of uh, executive, uh, you know, powers, like I think that we just need to go further with that. So uh, like the, the patrol division is doing uh, a low risk, usually um, sort of service oriented form of policing. And uh, the investigative division is usually doing, uh, you know, you get your like sort of special like gun trace task force forces right. or like the task force is trying to take drugs off the street or whatever. Right. And they're like the hard charging kind of adventurers who are doing the really, really high risk policing. And I think that like one claim is having these two groups within the same agency gives you really, really bad uh 
selection effect and treatment effect for officers. Mm, right. So people go into patrol because they want to be like a, an adventuring crime fighter, right? And then when they're on patrol, what are they trying to show that their their bosses they can do? I can make pull off, make a different busts. You know, I can get drugs and guns off the street. I can arrest the bad guys, right? Uh, and so now you have everyone uh, working in the patrol, or lots of people anyway, working in patrol who really don't want to be there. They think of the work as sort of like social work with guns or something like that, right? They might think of it as kind of sort of like gendered terms. This was much more common, um, uh, you know, in, in decades past anyway. Right. Uh, and so having these two groups under one agency, these two functions under one agency uh, distorts uh, the really, really important one, right? Uh, the patrol uh, function is really important. And I think abolitionists agree, right? They They want... Uh, they want patrol. They they don't call it policing, but they want a certain kind of like patrol, security, right? Like security, secure. Almost, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, or like you know, neighborhood violence interrupters, right? Like, right. These are the kinds of things that they point to as success stories, right? Like no one called the police; they just re- you know relied on members of the community or whatever. So, like one thing I want to point out here is like what they're really doing is arguing for a particular amateur, non-professional conception of policing that was like at home and like conservative, like London, you know, several hundred years ago. So like, again, these are, these are not, you know, kind of new positions in in a way. Right. Um, Okay. Yeah. So like, here's this really bad problem in American policing, like criminal patrol Uh, officers are not trying to in you know, keep the streets sort of like orderly and safe or whatever. They're trying to find the drug dealers or they're trying to find the sex workers or the people with guns or whatever it is, right? And we're not doing this really important form of policing. We're not giving anyone this really important form of social control. Or we're doing less of it, right? Uh, and we're getting uh, a high legitimacy risk kind of policing that basically, uh, you know, very few people want. And so uh, one thing that I recommend doing is separating out these agencies, right? More specialization is often good. So like the Los Angeles, um, in Los Angeles, they're thinking about uh, setting up a metro police agency instead of having the LAPD and the sheriff's agency do it. And I think that this is a great idea, right? Uh Transit systems should have specialized police agencies that don't care about getting drugs off the streets. They don't care about arrests. They just want to make the trains run on time, right? Right, right. And and actually sort of, you know, you're talking about separation and that kind of thing and that model work. I actually want to kind of add another sort of dimension to it. Like how, like, I guess, it, you know, if we were to work towards implementing the principles and the kind of models that you outline, how, um, how much is the, for lack of a better term, like localness of all of this, uh, you know, how important is that? Like, and that is to say, like, some people would suggest that, you know, the fact that, let's say, the more dense an environment gets or the more uh, area that a certain police institution patrols or is responsible for, the more distant you get away from the people that you're actually, uh, you know, supposed to, quote unquote, serve and so on and so forth. And so goes the argument, even, you know, into economics with local knowledge and things like that. And local incentives, for example, if you're a member of the community, you're probably uh, like likely to act a little differently than somebody who's just being you know, wheeling it in their police car from a different end of town and going to implement some of these things. So how, how sort of, um, we talked about the separation of different functions, how small and local and regional and federated almost, uh, you know, how, how does that sort of play into your thinking on this too? Is that even important? I think it's really important. So, um, 
one of the things that's crucial for figuring out, you know, how to how to achieve just policing is figuring out how to draw our boundaries of power. And so that is not, you know, merely, uh, you know, like jurisdictional in the way that I've suggested. We want to separate the uh, patrol division from like the investigative division or something. There are also these geographic issues to contend with. But I think the legitimacy risk framework can do a little bit of work here as well. Uh, there are certain uh, kinds of policing that are going to be more contentious on local levels than others, right? So it seems to me like a state police department could probably employ uh, all of the homicide detectives. And I think that would probably be fine. In fact, it might be better, right? Like uh, if the state of California started hiring investigators, you know, right out of school, the way the FBI does, rather than hiring them from the ranks of their patrol divisions. I think you'd get better policing that way. And there's not a whole lot of, you know, local variation and norms about like, you know, homicide or sexual assault, right? So that's the sort of thing that I think you can probably uh, profitably centralize. There are questions about, you know, like efficiently allocating your resources and stuff that um, I don't have a whole lot to say about there. Uh, but like, on the other hand, there are questions about like, we disagree about the acceptable use of public and private space. And this isn't like a distinction of, you know, I, that I think is all that relevant to justice. It's just people use space in different ways. Right. Right. Uh, one of the things that I, you know, loved about my time living in New Orleans was just how unusual a lot of uses of public space are. Right. You know, random, unscheduled parades. Um, and it's like, if you go to that area, uh, that's the sort of thing that you, I think, have to tolerate. Uh, and as a matter of justice, I think that the police should be uh, taking a hands-off approach to like noise complaints and these right. kinds of circumstances, right? Um, and so localism, uh, for the purposes of discretionary non-enforcement, I think can be really valuable because local knowledge and local incentives can tell you, you know, how has this community maintained, uh, you know, an equilibrium about, you know, the acceptable use of public space or have they? And, you know, is this the sort of thing that, that we can help? Um, when you look at the like ethnographies of like your patrol officers or whatever, a lot of these issues are so hyper local that I think that you probably want the institutions to be a little closer. The problem is that localism is also super fraught, right? As you see it in like housing decisions. Uh, if you want, you know, plentiful housing, you can't make that a local decision. Otherwise, you just empower the NIMBYs and then, you know, homelessness skyrockets in, in Los Angeles, right? So, like, it's really bad for housing decisions to be made locally in California. Uh, you probably want them to be made at the state level. And so I don't think that... Um, you know, like I'm not a proponent of the kind of like polycentric, let's make everything as hyper local as possible, uh, because I think that there are real justice trade offs here. Um, so, one thing, one last thing to say here that's interesting uh, on the like residency requirement stuff, a lot of people have thought that, right? You want police officers to be members of the community that they're policing, and so you should have them live in the city. When you do that, you make it harder for police agencies to hire. Uh, and uh, your, uh, I think, recruit uh, talent pool suffers as a result. Like, I think this is a really serious problem for the New Orleans Police Department uh, a couple of decades ago. But optimistic thing to finish on here is, like, there's uh, some pretty good research that suggests that putting people on uh, foot patrol, uh, a 
uh, beat assignments with uh, long-term beat integrity. So you're going to walk the same sort of few blocks every day or every shift that you have for like the next year. That's the sort of thing that plugs officers, patrol officers into the local norms, gives them the local knowledge. Uh, and we have empirical evidence that it gives, it makes them have a lighter touch, right? They're less excited about, you know, making arrests. They don't really want to give out tickets, all these sorts of things. So um, I, there isn't like a, a, like one sort of like silver bullet kind of answer to this question of localism. Uh, I think that it contributes to you know, enhancing the justice uh, and legitimacy of policing in certain contexts, but not in others. Right. No, that's an excellent and a very interesting point of view. Um, and I have one more question here, I guess, as our time winds down before I move us to sort of like the formal wrap up. So you can give us sort of your final thoughts. But um, you mentioned actually selection effect briefly before, and I have a, com- a question sort of in that vein, if you will. You know, mm-hmm. th- there there is sort of an argument that m- modern policing, or I guess I should just say the idea of policing in general, like if we get to the bare bones idea of some other human is going to be supervising and participating, participating in the supervision and the overwatching, if you will, of other human beings that this 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 sort of sort of seed, if you will, uh, no matter how you structure policing, there's always going to be. Um, a risk to the legitimacy of the, of, the, of the policing that's happening because certain types of people gravitate toward that very idea. Like, you know, and, and granted, I mean, to make sure we don't step into much I- ideals or just things that don't exist, obviously the real life is a mixed bag. There's sure, granted, there's a lot of people get into policing with, you know, the, the, the genuine conviction that they're there to help people. It's like a local sheriff mentality kind of thing. But, but many, many, many others certainly do not because that's just, you know, what it means to be human. So what about this idea that some people say because of that you're always dealing with this fact that policing is always going to delegitimize itself because you're getting people who like this idea overall, or at least are okay with it at the very least. Is it just incentives that we use after to, to in the model that you talked about? Like what, what's your take on that sort of point? Cause some of these people say from just from that point, it's a non-starter if you think about it that way. Yeah, that's a really important point. Um, <clears throat> and it's a longstanding one, right? So like in the Republic, Plato worries about how you get rulers to rule. How do you get good rulers to rule, right? You don't want people doing it for pay um, because there's something gross about that, right? And you don't want people doing it for honor because, you know, I don't know, there's something gross about that. I don't actually remember Plato's argument. But the kind of more like, you know, pressing uh, familiar version of this concern is like, how do you staff an agency uh, and avoid the problem of like the power hungry people, right? The like, you know, stereotypical guy who is like, a backup lineman in college or high school rather and was like bullied and is looking for some power now and wants to exert it. Right. Um, yeah, this is a, a really serious problem and it's one that kind of concerns everyone. Um, but this, these selection effects are, are really serious, right? Uh, before the professional era of policing before, you know, we were like, we had, uh, you know, entrance exams and like civil service exams and these sorts of things before it was really professionalized. Right. There was this worry that like all of the night watchmen were just like drunk all of the time and not actually doing their job. So like whatever the worry is, like, how do we hire the people to do a good job, whether that's like not be honor seekers or power seekers or, you know, not to be like, you know, hopeless drunks or something like that. Uh, and, uh, and I've suggested that like, you also want to uh, 
um, hire people who want to do the kind of work that their division or agency is doing, right? It's really bad uh, to have like people in patrol who want to right. be making arrests, right? Okay, so so how do we solve this problem? Uh, so one thing that I think we need to do is change the uh, structure of our police agencies, the kind of separation that I was talking about earlier changes the selection effects, right? If there's no hope of being promoted into an investigative position, right, uh, then, and that's what you want to do, then you're not going to go into the patrol division, right? Uh, so, like, that's that's one thing that you can do. Another thing that's really important is to change the treatment effects. Uh, and the way that you do that uh, is you change what the culture values, right? You look at what police agencies award and they give out awards for things like bravery, right? If you are like, you know, in an officer involved shooting, you have, you know, all the cred in the world and you're kind of like a hero in your department. Uh, but no one really cares about the fact that maybe earlier that day you de-escalated, you know, some wellness check or something like that. Uh, and so you want your agencies set up in such a way that uh, you are hiring people into them to do the work that that agency ought to be doing. Uh, and your training and rewarding and sort of promoting in, in the right kind of way. Uh, one other point to make here, though, is that specialization uh, is, as you know, a lot of things are, is also kind of fraught, right? So in on, on, on the other hand, right, you imagine an agency like uh, ICE in the United States, the Immigration and uh, uh, you know Customs Enforcement. Um, there's a New York Times article that came about, out not too long ago about ICE, and it was like, basically, ICE knows that everyone, everyone is kind of in scare quotes here, but basically everyone hates ICE, right? Like, why? Well, because, you know, unless you're like a hardcore closed borders proponent, you're likely going to think that what they're doing is, is pretty terribly unjust. So who works for ICE? People who want to do these things, people who don't take uh, enforcing, you know, heavy-handedly enforcing immigration laws uh, to be to be unjust, like right. those are the people who are going to do it, right? And so, selection effects can be really valuable for like molding a good, gentle kind of service-oriented patrol division. But I think that there are some really serious concerns about the investigative side of things with specialization as well. Um, and so, you know, it's a bit of a, a, you know, a mixed bag, I guess, in that way. No, that, that's a very interesting points. And and with that, Jake, I mean, our, t- our time has wound down here and I'm going to move us to our formal wrap up. Uh, we, we've talked about a lot and, and in each episode, I want to ultimately uh, give the guests the last word to, you know, bring us full circle in the question and put our finer point on our exploration of all the topics. So let me ask you the the official last question in everything we've talked about, what do you ultimately hopes are, hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to here on whether just policing is possible? In other words, I like to say, if you wanted people listening to us here today to leave with just one, two, or a few things on their mind, if anything, from what you've said in all our time together today, what would those things be at the end of the day? Yeah, this is a really good and difficult question. Uh, so one thing I think that uh, I want people to take away uh, is that institutions of social control are necessary. Uh, they're not going anywhere. Uh, and it's really difficult uh, to sort of get them right. Uh, and this is like in some ways um, part of the a continuation of like the basic liberal project of like, how do we, uh, you know, make and enforce a set of rules that we can all agree on, despite the fact that we have these robust, you know, uh, differences and, you know, all these kinds of diversity. 
And I think that the abolitionists in a lot of cases lose sight on that, right? There's a lot of criticism of the liberal project, right? You have people like Alex Vitale who say that, like, there's this liberal fantasy that the cops are here to protect us, right? And, and a lot of the tone is kind of derisive, uh, but, like, you're not entitled to take that tone unless you have a solution to this problem of thoroughgoing disagreement and diversity that that renders uh, social control extraordinarily difficult to achieve, right? Uh so that's one thing to say, right? Uh, part of why it's difficult to get just policing is right is because we just disagree about lots of these things. Uh, and uh, that makes it really hard for us to all kind of like live together, right? Uh, and so, you know, you get these views that like, if we all just sort of get together and start organizing for real justice, we won't need the police anymore. Uh, and therefore, we should be abolitionists. Like, I think that that's actually uh, pretty naive, right? Um, we can try to organize for real justice all we want. There's no guarantee that we know what justice is. There's no guarantee that, you know, our political systems will produce rules or institutions that are like achieving that because it's all really hard. And these disagreements are sort of natural to politics and ordinary. And this is not a result of kind of like mustache twirling villains facing off against the good guys. So the second thing to keep in mind is that I think, um, just social control, just policing uh, needs to be strategic. I don't think that there is any possibility of setting up a system of rules that is so good uh, that full enforcement uh, could be an actual requirement of justice uh, or could be legitimate, right? There's always going to be a need for discretionary policing, whether that's a result of prioritizing your efforts or a result of, you know, interpreting the statutes. And that's true whether you imagine the lawmaking body being a representative legislature or like, you know, a lottery staffed, you know, local plebiscite or something. It kind of doesn't really matter. The problem's the same. Uh, and then, you know, you might disagree with me about uh, how police should go about uh, strategically using their resources. Um, but I think that if uh, if you've agreed with me that, you know, just policing is necessarily strategic, I, I think that counts as some progress. Well, that's excellent. I think we'll, we'll leave it right there. Thank you very much for wrapping that up. And uh, thank you very much, uh, Jake, for joining me on The Curious Task today. Yeah, thanks so much. This was a ton of fun. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Alex Aragona, Sabine Elchediak, and Eric Segain. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona, and thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. Thank you.